Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. God has not changed his address. God was not a part of the urban flight or the rural revitalization program. God still lives where God has always lived, in your heart. God is still doing what God has always done, loving you. God is still who God has always been, the source and supply of all that you need and desire. God is still doing things in the only way that God has ever done anything, in the only way that God can do anything, eternally. Some of us don't think God is still around because we haven't visited God in such a long time. With all the changes and the challenges, the ups and downs, additions and subtractions in our lives, our faith in God may have faded. Some of us may even have concluded that God has gone away and that there is absolutely no way to find God in the midst of all the pain, confusion, discontent, disharmony, and discord in our own lives. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. God is still in the same place in the midst of your need, being the same way, merciful and forgiving, for the same reason, love, under the same circumstances, waiting for you to acknowledge and accept how much you depend on God. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair reminds us that God is still here and we still depend on God for all of life. It's a good reminder, one that we all need from time to time. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner, where your input will provide us with important keys to creating a more productive and positive relationship with God and His people. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Well, today's the start of Consider Christianity Week. It's an annual event held two Sundays before Easter, and during this week, Christians are encouraged to contemplate the reasons for their faith and for non-Christians to take another look at the faith that has played such an important role in shaping the history and culture of our lives. This is a good time for those born into the faith to realize what a gift faith really is and appreciate the faith that we have. Any thoughts? Well, that's a whole... (laughs) I mean, my goodness, that's the whole task of the church today in particular, you know, evangelization, uh, that we become missionary disciples in the world. And um, with all due respect to uh, a day or week dedicated to this, it's a full-time occupation Mm. for all of us who profess our faith in Christ, that if we love Christ, we have to let that love be, be made known in the way we live, the way we work and talk. And uh, we have to be people of invitation to bring to to share the joy that we have in the in uh, in our faith. I guess it's like Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is not the only day that you think about the precious gift of love in your life, and so too consider Christianity Week should be just a, a, a special week to refocus and redouble your efforts, our efforts, to appreciate our faith that we have. Yes, you know, just this week I'm reminded by what you're saying that. Uh, we invited uh, a Father uh, Turner, not not our Father Turner of this diocese, but the Father Turner who's written the book called Ars Celebrandi, which is Latin for the art of celebrating about the Mass. We invited him 
one day to speak to our priests, another day to speak to our permanent deacons. And he uh, was very well received. We had excellent attendance by our priests and deacons uh, to for him to go over the parts of the Mass, for us to rededicate ourselves to celebrating well, the Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebrating, that we do it with the mind of the Church and, and such. And I bring this up because he pointed out, and I hope I haven't uh, slipped up on this one myself, but and I don't think I have, but at the end of Mass, uh, when we are sent forth, the Mass is ended, it, the, the translation, what it says is the, in the Missal, is not the Mass is ended, go in peace, but all the formulas for that concluding admonition, either by the priest who's celebrating or the deacon, all begin with the word go. Go, the Mass is ended. Go forth. Uh, to, you know, to, I don't remember all of the uh, things in the Missal, but each one of them begins with the word go. And so when we're talking about, you know, a, a day dedicated to uh, pondering uh, the truth of Christianity uh, and, and trying to spread it, we need to uh, always remember that each and every one of us at the end of every Mass, that what we're told to do is go and out there into the world and bear witness to our faith, to live the faith. That's the most important thing of all. It's almost like the Mass gives us the ability, the courage, and the the energy to go the forth into the food. Ah, the food. We fed on forth, the Eucharist. Go forth the, into the community and feed others too with the we word. We fed on the very body and blood of Christ. Saint Paul says, "I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me." So if we really uh, are attentive to that, if we receive communion worthily, prayerfully, thoughtfully. Uh, then we ought to think of that during the week, uh, that Christ, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. So I ask myself, what would Christ do? What would Christ say? How would Christ act? And that has to be our constant uh, uh, inspiration. And of course, during Lent, we have confession because you and I and everybody, we don't always uh, live that way. We fail. But when we do, we, we like Jesus falling on the way to the cross, we get up and we start over through penance and absolution, and we, we, we become missionary disciples. Tomorrow is the 54th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Dr. King's vision was one of inclusion, of nonviolence, and respecting the rights of each and every person. He wanted America to be one country of one people, and for all people to be treated in the same way, no matter what they looked like or where they came from, 54 years after Dr. King's death. Do you think that vision is still alive, Archbishop? Well, I think the vision's alive, but uh, we are still uh, human beings uh, who are tempted to evil. We live in a world, not only our own country, but everywhere, where prejudice, hatred, division, and we don't even need to go into that, how it's obvious uh, that this is always a great nagging temptation, a great wound, a great wound of the human race that leads to all kinds of evils and unhappiness. So, yes, we all have to try to live by that vision. Let's take a look now at our Gospel reading on this Sunday when we celebrate the fifth Sunday of Lent, the third day of April. Today's reading is from John's Gospel, the eighth chapter, and after the Gospel is presented in dramatic fashion, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, ask you for your thoughts. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. 
and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such. What do you say about her? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the eldest. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus looked up. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. Archbishop, leave it up to the scribes and the Pharisees to cause trouble. What's the message here? Well, first let me preface this by saying these Sundays of Lent uh, in parishes where uh, you're observing the preparation for baptism, an alternate gospel is permitted that is uh, set forth for that. But uh, in general, this gospel of the woman caught in adultery, well, you know, it is, uh, first of all, the hypocrisy of anyone who condemns someone else's sin but doesn't acknowledge even to themselves that they are also sinners. And I think that, of course, nothing got our Lord more angry than that is the hypocrisy uh, of claiming to be, um, you know, sinless and pure and condemning other people. And I don't need to go into all the gospel parables in which our Lord condemns this. So here we have a situation where a woman is caught in a very serious sin of adultery. And I might point out that Jesus at the end says, neither do I condemn you, but go and from now on do not sin anymore. You know, Jesus never said to people, well, you're forgiven your sins, so it's all right. You can just keep doing what you're doing. Mm. He always called them to repentance and faith. That was the gospel. That The good news is the call of repentance and faith, which brings forgiveness. So we're all like that. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be condemning other people. Uh, we should be looking to our own sins and uh, doing what our Lord said, do not sin anymore. How does Jesus' reproach, let the one among you who is without sin be the first to cast the stone at her balance with my obligation to help correct the faults of a brother or a sister? Is there ever a time when I should pick up a stone and throw it? No, not pick up a stone and throw it. Certainly sin has its consequences. Sin is evil, and so both individually and as a community— we do everything we can to prevent it. We have laws against, you know, crimes, sinful things that people can do because we live in that kind of world. So we're not around like, you know, a flower child putting a, a daisy in, in, the, in mm. the hands of, of, of people who do terrible things. Although there, too, we have to always, we hate the sin but love the sinner. No matter how uh, heinous a crime may be, we, should, we can never let hate or revenge or retribution be the motivation of how we deal with evil. Uh, but by the same token, uh, that doesn't mean that we can have the hypocrisy of acting like we're perfect. We have to always be open 
to the mercy and forgiveness of God. We have to pray for sinners. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Love those who do evil to you. You know, turn the other cheek. You, you, so it's, it's always trying to find the right balance. You know, the faith, the gospel, is always about both and, not either or. It's justice and mercy. It's love and truth. And uh, I think whenever we forget these kinds of things, we distort uh, what Jesus taught us, and we distort the truth. Well, we we don't know what Jesus did when he bent down and he began to write on the ground with his finger, but we can speculate. Any thoughts? Well, thoughts are idle. I mean, it just some people said Jesus was writing the 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 sins of the people who condemned. You know, some he was writing something that made the people who were condemning her realize that he knew their sins. I don't know. It could be something else. But uh, it's, it's kind of a, a way that Jesus began to, uh, that they departed one by one. So there must have been something there. Some kind that, of a challenge. That, ha- huh? that had to do with them, yes. They all went away one by one, and Jesus did not condemn her, but he did issue a warning. What does this warning suggest to you? Well, it's a warning of love. It's a warning of, uh, of concern, you know, if you see somebody destroying themselves, whether it's in your own family or someone else, you try everything you can to put them on the straight and narrow or for them to go on the straight and narrow. You try every which way to turn them away from the evil or self-destructive behavior that they're engaged in. And uh, Jesus does that. God does that for all of us. Well, let's take a look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. Jenna from New Britain, for instance, says... I am a Catholic now in my third year of college. My friends are supportive of my beliefs, although very few are also Catholic. Sometimes they ask me questions about my faith that I can't answer, and a recent question really stumped me. How do I explain the assumption of Mary and the Immaculate Conception to my non-Catholic friends? Well, I don't have time, Jenna, to go into a thorough uh, kind of historical, scriptural, theological uh, explanation, my first bit of advice would be, uh, if you're in your third year of college, you obviously uh, are a person of uh, uh, ability in studies, and therefore I would, I would suggest that you do some research online in very reputable, sound uh, Catholic uh, teaching about the origin of these uh, uh, doctrines. But I would simply say that they are rooted in Scripture, and they have been held by uh, the, the faith of the Church from very early on. Uh, they, are, they are based partly in traditions of history, but partly in the instinct of the Church from earliest times, that first of all, Mary herself, who was called to be the Mother of God, in view of the merits of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection, in view of that— was uh, granted to be conceived without the stain of original sin. And the second, about the assumption of Mary, also is the fact that uh, Jesus, having conquered sin and death and risen in uh, his body, as we are all going to do eventually, that uh, in the case of Mary, this uh, grace was given from the moment of the end of her earthly life. Uh, that she did not see corruption. And again, uh, in view of the fact that from from her flesh was 
was born uh, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word. So it's very interesting to see these things. They are rooted in Scripture. They are very a significant part of the Church's faith with roots very, very early on. And um, I, I think it would be good first to understand what these doctrines say, so that's understood, and then how the Church has come to uh, understand this. Alan from Torrington has a question for you, Archbishop. He, Alan says, what is the Church's teaching on pain control to the point of becoming unconscious and an end-of-life situation? Well, Alan, I'm not expert at this, but I can tell you that palliative care, which is what it is called, uh, has taken great, great, great strides in ministering, handling, caring for people who are in at the end of life. And I I know that uh, others could, for the medical profession and palliative care, could speak about this more precisely than I. But the bottom line is that this idea that somehow without suicide, uh, a dying person has to be subjected to uh, suffering all kinds of pain and such, that's simply not the case. You know, the church has never taught that you must uh, use extraordinary means to keep a person alive who is dying. But you certainly have to provide food and water. And modern medicine in palliative care, which has greatly developed in recent decades, can, you know, provide a very uh, uh, beautiful, peaceful, and, and painless death for people who are in extremis. Cheryl from Naugatuck has an interesting question for him. My grandchildren are excited about Easter, not for religious reasons, but for the visit from the Easter Bunny. My son and daughter-in-law encourage this, but I need to find a way to help them recognize the real reason for the holiday. What can I do to sprinkle a bit of Jesus into their Easter basket this year? Well, Cheryl, I think this is uh, something that a lot of people face. Um, I know of grandparents who are just heartsick that they have wonderful sons and daughters who are married who are good people and but they just don't practice the faith and their little grandchildren sometimes are so precious that they 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 want and they you know little children have a great sensitivity to religious things so the grandparents try to as you do Cheryl to try to infuse this in I think uh, you have to do whatever, all that you can to really talk to them in, in, at their level about what Easter's all about. And of course, the Easter bunny, I guess, is partly connected with the idea of new life. You know, that an, an egg gives birth to a little chick, a newly born chick. And in the same way, Jesus cracked open the, the tomb in which he was imprisoned, or seemed to be, and came forth with new life in the resurrection. I know when I was a kid, we always had, you know, the Easter basket with the eggs and such. Mm. I mean, it's a perfectly nice thing, but it, I never for a million years was that divorced for us from uh, the, the, the actual meaning of Easter, which is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Joe from Woodbridge says, In the canon of the Mass, we honor the saints Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius, Cyprian, Lawrence, Cassaginus, John, and Paul, Cosmas, and Damian. The Church recognizes more than 10,000 saints, many of whom are much better known than that list in the canon. Couldn't we draw more inspiration from saints whom we know a bit about, 
perhaps St. Francis of Assisi, St. Clair, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Catherine of Siena, or St. Padre Pio? Yes, well, Joe, the reason for that is that when you are hearing the first Eucharistic prayer, naming those saints, you are put in communion with the earliest Christians. Uh, And that is why, to show our great uh, uh, continuity, uh, our uh, our our communion, our communion with the very first Christians. This is a hallowed, almost sacrosanct kind of prayer that comes to us from the ancient church in Rome. The first Eucharistic prayer. Now there are others that have been uh, added after. There also are Eastern brothers and sisters in the uh, the Eastern Catholic churches that have, you know, the Eucharistic prayers of St. John Chrysostom and St. Basil. And they have a different composition with different references to saints. But these are the very earliest. These are, these are some of the first popes and some of the first Christians. So, for example, when it says John and Paul, it's not referring to the Apostle John or the Apostle Paul. It's referring to uh, saints who died in, in the Roman persecutions. And uh, for that reason, it's very important. Yes, we have all of our contemporary saints or later saints, but it's very important that we realize how much we are in communion from our very beginnings. And that's why the Roman canon has such a privileged place in the liturgy. Would you suggest that there's any canon or any place where a priest can mention a more contemporary saint, Archbishop? Well, the third Eucharistic prayer makes provision uh, that you can add the the name of the saint of the day. Of course, you have to be very careful with the Eucharistic prayer. The the Eucharistic prayer is not there to put your own personal devotion or some blick that you have about somebody. Uh, That's why, you know, I I started earlier by saying we had this session for our priests and Mm -hmm. permanent deacons about the sacredness of the liturgy, the Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebration. These are, they, because they're in English now for us, people might think they have, they, and, and priests think they can play with them, but they are meant to be said just as they are. And when in the Third Eucharistic Prayer it makes provision for adding the name of a saint, the saint that we typically add is the, the saint either of, the, of the, ch- the dedication of that church. So if you're in St. Clair Church, you could put Claire in there, or if it's the feast of Saint Claire, but otherwise we don't we don't try to uh, play around with these things. Joan from Waterbury says the church my family went to for over thirty years closed during the archdiocese's pastoral planning that began in two thousand seventeen. My kids want to have their weddings at the church they grew up going to, and I am unsure if they will still be able to. Can a Catholic church that has been closed still be used for masses, weddings, and funerals? Well, Joan, that depends. And, of course, this is a sad thing for all of us, but the reality is the configuration of parishes that we have inherited from the past no longer corresponds in every case to the realities of today, not only with regard to the number of priests we have, but above all by the number of people who are actually practicing their Catholic faith in the Archdiocese of Hartford. And I will tell you, I am, personally, I believe that if the vast majority of the people who call themselves Catholic were going to Mass faithfully every Sunday in Archdiocese, that God would provide us with the number of priests we need. 
because right now we have the number of priests we need to say mass for the number actually going to church but we don't have enough to to say mass in churches that are only half full or even less and especially multiplying a number of masses on sunday so that's a long preamble to answer your question but i would say this because there are churches that are as you say closed some of them are combined with other parishes and they remain so Let's say, I'll give you just a a fictional example. If uh, there was the Church of St. Peter and there was the Church of St. Paul, and now a new creation of parish has been created called Holy Apostles Parish, the the church is still St. Peter and Church and still St. Paul Church, and either of them can be used, you know, as the pastor and the people there have need of them. And so some of them, there are places where they are just reserved for funerals and weddings and such. Other churches, sadly, have been what we call canonically relegated to uh, from their use, and that means that they are no longer churches, and in that case, they would no longer be available for that. And some of them even have been uh, sold, uh, and again, too, we take out all the altars and the sacred goods, uh, but that those are the kind of levels that you find. So to answer your question, you would you you need to go to the pastor of the of the parish where they are going to have this wedding, and uh, and then they'll find out. Donna from Thomaston says, "Why do we permit, and even encourage distractions at the most solemn times in the mass? Soon after the consecration, we invite people to converse with one another at the sign of peace, which I believe should come much earlier in the Eucharistic celebration." Then we ask them to sing during the distribution of Holy Communion. Why not keep this period a quiet time as a sign of our deep reverence for the presence of Jesus in the sacrament? Well, Donna, I would respectfully disagree that somehow uh, saying, you know, the peace of Christ be with you is somehow uh, a distraction from the uh, solemnity of Mass. I mean, Mass is an act of worship, but it's also a communal act of worship, and offering someone the peace of Christ is is not, uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, you know, some uh, distraction. As far as uh, a quiet time after Holy Communion, I do agree with you about that. In as much as I've always urged people, when you receive Holy Communion and you come back to your pew, even if there's singing going on. Uh, you can you can say you don't have to I don't always sing when I come back from communion through the whole time. I take a few moments in my own words and my own heart and mind to say a prayer to Christ, and you can do that um, as and even if you're in the choir uh, when you're when you're done singing, you can do that. Uh, also, before I say let us pray at the end of mass, I always have a few moments uh, where I, I wait when everything is quiet before I, I do that concluding prayer. And, you know, really, priests are encouraged to do that, that before we do the final prayer, we just take a few moments of silence. But I couldn't agree with you more about that need uh, for, for reverence and for personal prayer. One last question from Ed from Hartford. It says, while being brought up in the church for our First Communion, we had direct personal confessions with priests. Will there be more opportunities for confessions like this? And I'm not sure I know what he means by that. Well, I think Ed might be referring to COVID, uh, that for a while there, we have had to make provisions for 
a confession uh, that may, maybe you wouldn't characterize as so direct and personal, although you understand that every confession must be a direct and personal encounter between one priest and one person. Uh, but maybe in the we weren't using the confessional uh, box for a while and such. But that is the normal form of confession, and that's what, you know, during Lent, we have these uh, Confession Mondays. You see billboards all over. I saw a huge one on I-84 the other day as we were coming back from, uh, I think, uh, Waterbury on the bend there saying, Monday confessions in your Catholic churches, please come, you know. So uh, I check your... Uh, during Lent especially, check your local parish's uh, uh, schedule for that Monday, every Monday, and uh, and make an, a, a point of going. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord, as we come ever closer to the great mystery of your death and resurrection during Holy Week, commemorating it, we pray that our commemoration may be prepared by our unflagging intense prayer and penance and charity during these final weeks of Lent, that you will not let us lag behind or put aside our resolutions to live this Lent well and to make use of the graces that are given to us. And we pray that we may be well prepared and that Easter may see our world at greater peace, especially for the people who are suffering in Ukraine so horribly but for people throughout the world who suffer in any way. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next week as our preparation for the Great Feast of Easter continues. Thank you. 